Captain, he can only guess. Will you please let me do my job? I don't know what your job is. You may set those controls so we can't detonate that warhead. Bridge to all decks. Time for not only a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents, but I can't believe I'm saying this. This is our season two finale of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And strangely enough, this isn't really just an episode of Enterprise In- Incidents. You will also might discover the brand new podcast pilot that we're sneaking in the middle of this thing. And, and this has been going back to 1968 when this episode first aired. Of course, if we're talking about a backdoor pilot, we have to be talking about Assignment Earth, the season finale for season two of Star Trek. And joining us as our very special guest for this deep dive conversation of Assignment Earth is someone I've been wanting to get on this podcast for a really long time, but he's been he's been quite busy starting with the brand new director's edition of Star Trek, the motion picture in high definition, which after more than 20 years is finally with us and streaming on Paramount plus it is right there. So go and watch it. If you have not watched it yet in high definition or go to one of the fathom events screenings happening three times in the third week of May, and it is going to drop on Blu-ray in September. So for everyone who loves the physical media, September is your date, but do watch it because Star Trek, the motion picture, this director's edition has never looked or sounded better. He was the visual effects supervisor for the director's edition of Star Trek, the motion picture. He was, he was the concept artist for the first season of Star Trek Picard. He has been an illustrator and artist for so many movies over the last 33 years starting with The Abyss, his first movie, along with gems like Master and Commander, Passengers, Star Trek Beyond, X-Men, Last Stand, and Iron Man 2. He is one of the hosts, along with Mark Altman, who was our guest for By Any Other Name, of the number one Star Trek podcast, Inglorious Trexperts. And ladies and gentlemen, when I mentioned Inglorious Trexperts with Mark Altman on the show, I got a lot of responses from people who had not yet listened to that Star Trek podcast. So now I am mentioning this again. If you are a Star Trek fan and you have not yet listened to Inglorious Trexperts, my friends, you are missing out. So after you subscribe to <laughs> Enterprise Incidents, do subscribe to Inglorious Trexperts. And he's working on a really fantastic new virtual experience for Star Trek. And we're going to get into all that towards the end of the show. But right now, please say hello to my very good friend, Darren Docterman. Darren, welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents. Hello, Scott and Steve. It's so it's so great to be here. Uh, but I noticed that uh, you seem to be from the future, Scott. Well, well, I, I'm from the future, uh, but I am in the past because we have very important work to do on this episode because we are doing our deep dive on a very special, a very unique, and I think kind of misunderstood episode of Star Trek, one that is, I think, really held up in, in, in such great ways because that backdoor pilot that didn't sell in 1968, I think would still make a damn good show in 2022. So my question for you, Darren, is what was it or what is it about Assignment Earth that that you've always loved? I love Assignment Earth. Well, I guess the first reason that I love it is that it 
it was one of the first ones that I recorded on my dad's reel-to-reel recorder uh, from <laughs> off the air. And so I, I memorized the whole darn thing. And the story is so much fun because it's, you know, it deals with uh, unexplainable uh, time travel. What what are they doing there? I don't know. They don't know, but they're there. And <laughs> it's uh, great because it introduces this amazing new character, a couple amazing new characters, that are so much fun. And I want to spend more time with them, too. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it was not to be. But. What a great little uh, uh, universe expanding sort of uh, story that could have been the greatest sort of semi James Bond Star Trek show ever. And, uh, you know, the introduction of Gary Seven has been always one of my favorites. And uh, Robert Lansing was the man. He really was. I, I got to say, I have not watched a Simon Earth in a long time, not because I for any reason, just because, you know, there are other episodes that I go to that I do watch all the time. But when I rewatched Assignment Earth, I really, really enjoyed it. I think it is a, a stellar episode. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, like you said, I, I, Robert Lansing is just magnificent as Gary Seven. Terry Gar is delightful as Roberta Lincoln. And I got to say, uh, one of the reasons uh, that one of the ideas that flipped me off on having you on the show to talk about it was I, I, you know, we're friends on Facebook and I saw you holding up a servo and I went, ah, <laughs> that's the one I'm going to have him talk about. And here it's it is right here. My, uh, my official Gary seven servo that I've had for many years. I'm uh, sure. Um, I'm sure. An interesting thing. I, I actually worked on uh, the all three seasons of Picard, by the way. Oh, excellent. But uh, when the stuff for season two started, the uh, prop master uh, asked me, hey, um, we need sort of a, a couple devices for this uh, this character in the season. And uh, do you have any idea uh, what that uh, what that device that the, the time traveler used, the Gary Seven guy? Well, and I, I, I basically, it was on my desk at the time. <laughs> and so I, I basically held it. Oh, you mean this? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, my God, I could have, I should have figured that you had one. Um, of course. <laughs> but I was so jazzed to sort of uh, reintroduce that into the Star Trek uh, world. That and, is awesome. Uh, that is awesome. We, add, we added a little bit of, uh, you know, modern flair, but not too much. It's, uh, it's still recognizable. It is still very, very happy. And still and still very effective. Steve, what about you? Like, how how have you felt about Assignment Earth over these years? Well, it's funny. Th this one I've been thinking about because what's weird is, as a person who, between this podcast and the Cinephiles, and really a lot of my work has been like, I love to dig in deep and analyze and figure things out and the why of it. It's amazing to me how little I was paying attention when I was a kid. You know what I mean? Like it just, I just love Star Trek and I love watching it. And I remember it probably was in high school after watching this episode, who knows how many times that I suddenly went, wait a minute. <laughs> and then like started to think about what the heck is this episode? And it was only then that I went, Oh, I think this must have been a pilot. And then, mm -hmm. of course, when I got my Star Trek compendium and I got some other stuff to look at, I learned more about how these things came about. But it, it, it's such a bizarre episode of television because of what it is and because really of what it isn't, which is that it isn't exactly an episode of Star Trek. I mean, it is. Ish. Right. <laughs> yeah, ish. It's, a yeah. real, it's a real weird one. 
It's it's interesting because this was the episode that closed out season two, and it was also uh, the first episode since the middle of the first season in which Gene Roddenberry was credited as producer uh, over John Meredith Lucas and Gene Kuhn, who were who were gone by then. But Assignment Earth did air on March 29th, 1968. It was the 55th episode to air because it was the last episode to air at the end of season two. But it was the 56th episode to film. So you're thinking, wait a minute. If it was the 55th to air, how could it be the 56th to film? Well, that's because I am including The Cage. So it was filmed over seven days between January 2nd and January 10th, 1968. The total cost for Assignment Earth was a little over $193,000, which made it go over budget by almost $11,000. Fortunately, the score was tracked. See, the uh, interesting thing is that when they finished filming Assignment Earth on January 10th and the cast was dismissed, Nobody knew on January 10th whether or not they would be back for a third season because it wasn't until the Omega Glory aired in March of 1968 that they found out that Star Trek would be renewed. Right. So Assignment Earth was directed by Mark Daniels. It's the 13th of 14 episodes that he directed. So of course, you know that he tied with Joseph Pevney as having directed the most episodes of Star Trek 14. Teleplay was by Art Wallace and Gene Roddenberry. Art Wallace, he was he did one other episode of Star Trek, which was Obsession. But Assignment Earth actually started as a pilot when Gene Roddenberry wrote his story outline on April 20th, 1965, which was the same day that he submitted his story outline for The Omega Glory, which at that time was one of the three episodes considered for the second pilot, good thing they went with where no man has gone before. So Roddenberry's story outline was seven. He did a rough draft on November 14th, 1966, where the Star Trek actors uh, characters were not in this version of the script. But then Art Wallace comes in and Darren, since you are an inglorious Trexpert, like what was, what was Art Wallace's place in all this? Cause his, he was doing a version at the same time, Roddenberry was doing a version, and they they hadn't really collaborated yet. Well, not officially. Yeah, um, I think that they they definitely had talked because remember, uh, Art Wallace knew Gene Roddenberry because he had done an episode of The Lieutenant, and uh, so they were you know if not friends, they were certainly familiar with one another. Um, but and I, I believe that the the kernel of the idea. Uh, sort of came from Art Wallace, and then it was it was Roddenberry who had the idea to sort of fold this into a uh, a slip it in as a pilot into Star Trek to uh, to help with the uh, you know with the longevity of uh, other projects because he was feeling the uh, he was feeling the the tension from uh, Star Trek. And uh, it might not have gone on very much farther. Yeah, yeah. Star Trek was definitely teetering on the brink of cancellation at that point anyway. But Art Wallace wrote his own pilot spec script, which he called Space Cop in early of 1967. Ooh. 
Yeah, space, space cop. cop. It's yeah. not a not a winner there. Right, right, Steve. Doesn't that sound like something out of the fifties? Yeah. <laughs> but then Wallace and Roddenberry combined their stories, and that's when it was called Assignment Earth on October twenty first, nineteen sixty seven. And like Darren said, that is where the Star Trek characters were combined and added into this version. Wallace Vert, a a second draft teleplay dated December fourteenth. 1967, and then one day before filming commenced on January 1st, 1968, Roddenberry did his rewrite, his final draft teleplay, and made a lot of changes that Art Wallace wasn't that happy about, but that was kind of par for the course. Uh, Roddenberry was rewriting a lot of people back in the beginning of the first season. But it's his show, you know? I, I have, I mean, I think he should do what he wants. He knows, he knows these characters. Well, uh, every writer who was brought into Star Trek and knew anything about Gene Roddenberry knew what the situation was going to be, uh, that, uh, you know, it's not an anthology show. It is Gene Roddenberry's vision, quote unquote, and uh, (laughs) the the writers, the writers bring in their work. They're well paid. And then what happens with it is uh, is dealt with by Roddenberry or, you know or by others who, who fulfilled that role when Roddenberry was uh, stepping away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Can I just say something real quick is that what's so bizarre, one of the things that's so bizarre to me about this is if you know your show's on the bubble and you're worried that you're not going to get a second season, the choice to devote a big hunk of your show to something that doesn't highlight your cast feels really, it's, it's either like, I'm jumping ship because I don't know that this thing's going to go on. So I'm hoping to get something else going or because it's like, why abandon? I would think you'd want to have Kirk and Spock and McCoy shine in the, no, because they're expensive because they're expensive. And Roddenberry wanted to use the leverage that he had with all these viewers. And he had a lot of viewers by that. Sure. Um, He wanted to springboard off of the popularity of Star Trek and go into a show that might have been a little more palatable budget-wise to uh, right. to the studio, right? You know, right. Uh, because it's certainly not as expensive as uh, right. in terms of cast or in terms of setting. Uh, you know, if you can get away with uh, with stock footage every week and don't have to deal with a starship flying above, then you're pretty good. And I, I think that the the reason for the overages in in the show were primarily because they had a a bunch of new sets, including uh, Gary Seven's office, the uh, outer, the outer uh, uh, receptionist area, and uh, and the, that you know slightly uh, underwhelming mission control set. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> more, but, more than slightly underwhelming, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, but and it and it also had uh, you know it also had some uh, exterior f- uh, shooting and uh, look, it was uh, they had to figure out a lot of things. I mean. You know, the Beta 5 uh, computer uh, coming out of the wall was not cheap. So th- this was this was all stuff that would have bumped up the regular, uh, you know, non-shipbound episode. I, and I think I think part of the reason that the budget did go over a little bit there is because they it basically was a pilot. And yeah. and that happens. I mean, you know, the pilot for the cage was more than six hundred thousand dollars in nineteen sixty four. So yeah. you know, this one's less than two hundred thousand. And also, you know, it's so funny, Darren, when you talk about uh, a series episode like this being over budget at one hundred ninety three thousand. Right. 
Right. Even by today's these days, days, you can't even get the craft service for that uh, amount on any. Exactly. Of the exactly. And and also, you know, you were talking about the stock footage. So even by today's standards, all that stock footage of the Saturn V on the launch pad and the, you know the Apollo Four launch, you know the mission control stuff in Cape Canaveral. All that stuff is still really, really cool today, especially if you're a space junkie. But yeah. when this episode aired in, you know, March of 1968, you know, it was like we Apollo hadn't even really got off the or at least the, the Saturn V hadn't right. really taken people up yet. So all that all that footage was really, really cool to see it in a in a forward thinking episode uh, series like Star Trek. Yeah. But uh this was uh a, a uh, we we're now in the year 1968. There was a lot going on as Steve Morris will now fill us in. <laughs> Funny you should ask. Yes, we are. Welcome to 1968. And on January 1st at the Rose Bowl, USC beats Indiana 14 to 3. And it's really mostly due to a young running back named O.J. Simpson. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about these heart transplants. And what I didn't realize was how many, the, how once you had the first heart transplant, you had many, many of them because the third heart transplant happened on January 2nd. And this one was the first successful one. Mm-hmm. On the same day, LBJ signs the Bilingual Education Act. Eugene McCarthy on the next day officially announces he's going to run against Johnson, which is very, very unusual in the history of the U.S., um, now there's another heart transplant, another successful one in the U.S. at Stanford University. And there's a lot of surgery things going on because on the same day in South Africa, conjoined twins were separated for the very first time in history successfully. Um, and this one, this is worlds colliding right here. This current event on January 7th, and maybe both of you already knew about this. I did not. But in Los Angeles. 200 Caltech students marched and demonstrated in front of NBC Studios in Burbank as part of what appeared to be a grassroots campaign to save Star Trek, but was actually orchestrated by Roddenberry. <laughs> so, so that was, that was, you know, I, I've seen pictures of that and, uh, and they actually have, uh, uh, or at least they had one uh, in, in the lobby <laughs> at the NBC lot. So, so that was January 7th of 1968, that March on yep. NBC. That is yep. extremely cool. And this is Isn't before cool? social media. I mean, it's yep. like the internet. So way to go, B. Joe Trimble. <laughs> yeah. Um, on January 8th, and we mentioned this before, but that Otis Redding had recorded Dock of the Bay and died very, very soon after. And now less than a month after his death, it's uh, Dock of the Bay is released. On the same day, January 8th, a show that I bet all three of us grew up with, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, made its debut on ABC. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and on January 9th, the Secret Service confiscated $4.1 million in counterfeit money at JFK, the airport. This is the biggest confiscation of counterfeit money in the history of the U.S. Is that what we see in Goodfellas? The no, that's a that's a that's a Lufthansa heist. That's, that's Lufthansa think, heist. Yeah, yeah, it's oh, different. Okay. I had literally. It's funny, Scott. When I was reading this, I had the exact same thought. But that's <laughs> they are actually two different heists. Uh, a bunch of that counterfeit money was earmarked for paying for assignment Earth. So that's. that's <laughs> Um, if only Gary Seven could have come, you know, come here and save that. The episode might have been the pilot actually might have gone to series. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> 
Um, shall we get into the episode? Let's do it. So it's so odd now at the beginning of this that we're orbiting Earth and Kirk just explains that we used, hey, that light speed, the light speed uh, breakaway. Factor. Yeah, we're <laughs> back in the 20th century doing yeah. some historical research. It's like, wow, that's pretty so, interesting. So, so that uh, that light speed breakaway that they used in tomorrow was yesterday, which when they went back to the future, almost tore the Enterprise apart. So I guess it's like no big deal for them to go back in time. Well, uh, if you've been through it once, you'll be okay the next time. Yeah, right. And sure. Scotty's there, the miracle worker's there, so yeah, you're good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is so I, – I totally understand that, well, we just had to do this to make this episode work, but it also falls in the category of – things we probably would be better off if Star Trek didn't make so easy, you know? Although I guess we wouldn't get Star Trek Four either. And what we hear is that we're doing historical research to find out how we got through this very, very turbulent time of 1968. And just as we're discussing this, get a big shake on the Enterprise. Kirk here, what's happening? It appears we have accidentally intercepted someone's transporter beam, Captain. So, so here's the interesting thing. So this episode was filmed in the beginning of January, like right after New Year's Day. They filmed this episode and they described 1968 as uh, having desperate problems. Uh, what a prophecy for them to see ahead to what would become probably the most difficult year, certainly in U.S. history until certainly more recent years you know, with two assassinations and Vietnam and the riots and 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 everything going on, but but it's amazing that they they had the foresight to describe 1968 as as being such a problematic year. Well, and it also explains uh, why it was such a bad year because Gary Seven was busy dealing with McKinley Rocket Base. Right. That's right. It's <laughs> a really good point. It's I, I, I'll just I just want to say this uh, one small thing, which is. Yes, there's no question that 1968 is a turbulent year. But in general, if you talk to people at almost every year, at least in my lifetime, people are going to say, man, things are really bad right now. I've never seen yeah. it so bad. Yeah. They were saying yeah. they said that during Watergate. They said that during, you know, stagflation in the early 80s, the Iran-Contra, whether it's, you we're know. Saying it now. And we're saying it now. We were saying it when the beginning of the Iraq War. We said it at September 11th. We, you know. This is 2008, and it always feels that way. It's but sure not the way to, not life to put is. too much not to put too much blame on Gary Seven because remember he was going back to Earth in an emergency situation because they hadn't heard from Agents 201 and 347, right? And so that was the big mystery that he was going there to find out why have they disappeared? Why hasn't he heard from them? Right, right. That excellent point for sure. So we find out we're getting hit by this hugely powerful transporter beam, which they don't obviously don't have in the 20th century, and that the beam is originating at least a thousand light years away, and we don't even have that technology in the Star Trek timeline. So here's the interesting thing: when when Kirk is on the bridge and Spock calls him up, calls up to the bridge, and they show the transporter platform. This is the only time in the original series where, in the back of the transporter platform, you see like a flame. And it's a it's a really cool effect, yeah. And but it was the o- only time that that was that that was used because you know they're intercepting it's the power. It's the power of Gary Seven's transporter beam that's being right. deflected by the Enterprise's transporter. And, and I love that uh, you know there's another shake, and Spock says to Kirk, Captain, something 
is beaming aboard this ship. Right. Kirk's and, like, and then, I'll be right there. And then Kirk says, you're right. Something is beaming aboard. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, we know. So, we can see it. And so instead of seeing some, like, some powerful, you know, alien or or something something unusual looking, there is a guy, a human, a man in a 20th century business suit holding a black cat. And that man, Gary Seven, is played by Robert Lansing. Robert Lansing had been seen on TV over the years on shows like 87th Precinct, 12 O'Clock High, Bonanza, Auto Man, <laughs> The Equalizer, and Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. So, so Darren, before Robert Lansing got the job, who were some of the other people that Roddenberry had in mind to play Gary Seven? You know, I actually have no idea. I, I would love for you to uh, uh, educate me in this. Well, I can tell you that for sure, one of those actors that Roddenberry had in mind was actually someone he he also had in mind to play the captain of the Enterprise, and that is oh. Lloyd Bridges. Yep. There you so go. Lloyd Bridges read a treatment that Roddenberry had sent him, and this is back before Assignment Earth included the Star Trek characters, and right. Lloyd Bridges politely, quote unquote, politely passed. So then- uh, Roddenberry thought about uh, Patrick McGuhan, which would have been interesting, or even, and this is, I think, you know, glad this didn't happen, but Burt Reynolds was one of the other actors that Roddenberry had in mind. But I got to tell you, I thought Robert Lansing did a great job. And I also think, gentlemen, it is really interesting that the very first episode of Star Trek that was filmed for season two and the very last episode of Star Trek that was filmed for season two, both feature black cats. That is, I had the exact same thought. That is very interesting. And I just want to say, not only do I think Robert Lansing is great, mm -hmm. I think I, I think it points out, you know, both of you work in this industry, something that people might not know, there are a whole bunch of actors who are absolutely fantastic, who are 100% capable of starring in a TV show that never get the chance. And Robert Lansing, I can 100% see him as the lead of a fantastic TV show that could have gone on for years and years. He is so good, and he holds the screen just perfectly. He's so powerful on the screen. You know what I, I mean? Agree. He, I agree. just drawn to him every second, I think. You know, I, I think that that on one hand, you you know, when I was doing my rewatch of Assignment Earth, I was thinking like, well, I, it feels a little like Kirk and Spock are guest stars in their own episode. But totally. it's still, it's still work. I still think it works very, very well as a Star Trek episode. One that is just spending a lot more time on its guest stars for obvious reasons. But I, I really have a soft spot in my heart for for this episode after watching it again after all these years. And and well, Darren, I know you love it. Absolutely. Just to talk a little bit about uh, Robert Lansing's performance, he is definitely a film actor. His mannerisms and his uh, acting, facial acting, I'm talking about, are so small mm -hmm. and uh, refined and and held back a little bit that even the slightest like eye movement uh, registers as something important. Um, I agree. He, he, he knows how to play his instrument really well for the camera, and that's what that's what makes up most of my interest in it because he is so magnetic. I I think you hit the nail on the head, Doc. Uh, he is. 
he's got this gravitas where a restrained performance like the one he gives is not just great for TV, it's great for cinema. Couldn't agree more. I, I agree too. There's kind of a James Colburn quality about him, I think. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I like him a lot. So when, uh, we come when back. When I was right a kid, to- well, sorry, I was going to say, when I was a kid, I thought that Robert Lansing was Steve McQueen. Mm. Because, yeah. They, they, very, uh, like, if, very you, if you look, yeah, if you look at, watch the movie Bullet. They look very, very similar. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, totally see that. When Gary Seven steps off the transporter platform, this is the only time in these three seasons of Star Trek where you see your guest star's name after the title of the episode. Hmm. That's right. That's, and then again, for, for obvious reasons. Why have you intercepted me? And Kirk just turns around to Scotty and says, Security. <laughs> like, like uh, get security down here, stat. <laughs> then we have this moment of, who are you? Well, yeah. who are you? <laughs> um, and Kirk introduced himself as the United Spaceship. From what planet? Earth. And then this line is a fascinating line. That's impossible. In this time period, there weren't... And then he looks over and sees Mr. Spock. Humans were the Vulcan. You, you're from the future, Captain. There's a weird thing, by the way, where there can be things which totally seem to work, don't make much sense, and actually, the more you think about them, the dumber they are. And (laughs) Gary Seven is set up as this totally together, has everything under control, super smart sort of character, who really, the more I think about it, does nothing but stupid things (laughs) throughout a lot of this episode. Um, And one of them is right here. The very first thing he says is that's impossible in this time period. There weren't, if you're like a super spy, you probably shouldn't say in this time period as the first thing you say, because you've now revealed who, you know, at least that you know about the future. But I I like how, how Kirk and seven are kind of like doing this dance around each other. Like, like I, each other. Yeah. Yeah. They are so well matched. It's funny how, certainly there are there are episodes i i do watch over and over again on a regular basis and there are some others that i go back to every once in a while and having not watched this in a while one of the things that absolutely jumped out at me darren was how matched shatner and lansing really are they and also just goes to show you how great shatner was in the role that that you know roddenberry had the the foresight to, to cast someone who who also had his own Gravitas, obviously, William Shatter. Captain Kirk, my name is Gary Seven. I am a human being from the 20th century. I was on my way. Humans of the 20th century do not go beaming around the galaxy, Mr. Seven. And he explains he's been living on another planet that's far more advanced, and he was beaming to Earth when they intercepted him, and we asked for the location of the planet. They wish that kept secret. (laughs) Um, I think this is a really fascinating setup for a show. I, agree. I, I really like the idea. Absolutely. Um, Reminded me of that scene in Airplane where Robert Hayes is telling Julie Haggerty how he's going to fly in. My squadron ships out tomorrow. We're bombing the storage depots at Daiquiri at 1,800 hours. We're coming in from the north, below their radar. When will you be back? I can't tell you that. It's classified. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Actually, that joke works for a lot of stuff that happens in this episode. You interfere with me with what I have to do down there, and you'll change history. You'll destroy the Earth, 
and probably yourselves too. What a position to be in and the look on Kirk's face and then the way Spock is like, well, Captain. A most (laughs) difficult decision, Captain. A most difficult (laughs) decision. And every moment we delay him is it could could make things much much worse like you said steve this is a great setup and i and it it very clearly says what this episode is going to be about can't beam you down without further proof one way or the other security confinement and he's calling up to mccoy when gary goes to escape and man gary's strong is tough and the vulcan neck pinch doesn't work on him that is such a great touch that he is so he's clearly from the 20th century yeah. but whatever training whatever physical training happened on this other world while he was becoming agent Gary 7 uh that he was immune to the FSNP the famous Spock neck pinch <laughs> I think that is such a cool thing because yeah. we've said we spent so much time Dealing with that and loving it, that when it doesn't work, it is awesome. No, I think that that Lansing is 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 great. And I mean, I totally could have seen a, a show like this go on for like four years, you know, four oh, or five years. Like and and like you said, it's not something I I ever thought about, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it would have cost a whole lot less than Star Trek. And of course, the only reason we get out of this is Kirk manages to pick up a phaser and stun Gary Seven. Otherwise, he would have taken out all of them. And McCoy is on the McCoy is on the line all this time, and he hears the commotion going on because otherwise uh, uh, McCoy isn't in this episode a whole lot. <laughs> right. We're in the briefing room, and they set up a thing, which is just it's an odd choice. I kind of like it, which is he instead of having all of our characters sitting in the briefing room, we have Kirk and Spock in the briefing room. Spock cuddling with Isis, the black cat, right. and Kirk calls out to everyone on the ship and says, "Hey, call in." with some info and i wonder is like maybe there was a scheduling reason that they had to shoot it this way um it's it's probably a combination of a couple things uh because remember singles on anyone on the bridge can be lit very quickly yeah and you don't have to light up the whole bridge you don't have to have everyone on the bridge at the same time so they could just go through one at a time and do it in a couple hours and then you don't have to shoot on the bridge yeah, yeah, but that's a really good point. I never thought about that. Why, why weren't Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu in, in the briefing room? But I they're guess working. you could – because they're working, they're right. Working. They're Somebody, the somebody's got to drive okay. the Enterprise. <laughs> I think you're 100% right. The time to do a master shot and all the coverage versus setting up singles in a couple of locations and knocking them out, there's a huge difference. Or even shooting everybody in the uh, briefing room. Because setting right. up that is difficult too, because then you got to do singles on everyone and you got to move the camera around and it's a mess. And uh, Jerry Finnerman would not be pleased. <laughs> I bet it's, by the way, I, knowing cinematographers, it's the opposite. Cinematographers want shot, they want the wide shot. They don't want to shoot just tight they singles. They don't want to just do it. They just do, no. don't want to do yep. singles. Oh, by the way, that cat, according to Robert Lansing, there were three cats used as ISIS. So Bijo Trimble, who of course was, uh, the one who launched the whole letter writing campaign to save Star Trek visited the set for assignment earth. And she remembered seven cats. I don't know if it's seven. I'm going to go with the three that Robert Lansing remembered. And one of the cats was named Sambo in real life. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) 
it's slightly uncomfortable, I think. Um, and speaking of cats, that's what Kirk asks about. He asks Spock, what do you make of the cat? And Spock says, quite a lovely animal. I find myself strongly drawn to it. <laughs> Two things about this. One is Spock likes the fuzzy animals, clearly. Yeah, he sure yeah. Does. He, likes he tribbles. Was, he likes the tribbles, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Likes the cat. The second thing is, didn't they examine the cat? Like, it's such a, it's a, there's so many things where I go, this seems kind of dumb. Like, you don't know this, this guy beamed in from this place with this animal. I think you'd take this animal to McCoy to have it examined before you just sat there and cuddled with it. Yeah. McCoy would have uh, certainly had a lot to, a lot to figure out. <laughs> I think they, they saw it as, as uh, not seeming to be a threat and, you know, if Spock is cuddling with it, you don't want to mess with that. <laughs> it's it's great. No, it's it's that's what I mean by things that don't quite make sense to me, but are still kind of fun. Yeah. Mr. Spock, historical report. Current Earth crises would fill a tape bank, Captain. And the first thing he says is there will be an important assassination today. What I looked up, I think it aired on March 29th, 1968. That's right. And less than a week later, on April 4th, is when Martin Luther King was assassinated an equally dangerous government coup in Asia. And this could be highly critical. The launching of an orbital nuclear warhead platform by the United States, countering a similar launch by other powers. Not only was Martin Luther King assassinated, but that same day, the Apollo 6 Saturn V lifted off and had a very, very problematic launch. It Mm. was so problematic that the rocket vibrated so much, uh, they called it, uh, it pogoed so much that if human beings were in the command module, if astronauts were on board that rocket, the vibrations would have been so strong that they would have killed the astronauts. So here Spock is talking about uh, uh, an assassination and the launching of this platform. And just a few days after this episode aired, you had an assassination and a very important rocket launch. So it's really kind of eerily prophetic what Spock is saying here. One thing that is is different that really wasn't going on in 1968 is this idea of the proliferation of orbital nuclear devices. As far as we know, we were not putting nuclear devices into space. There were all sorts of treaties, which we talked about on the show, against arming space. And so this wasn't happening, I hope. (laughs) But maybe who knows? It's a good thing you brought that up, Steve, because in January of 1967, the Treaty for the Peaceful Exploration of Outer Space was signed, prohibiting nuclear weapons in space. So that was in January of 1967. So when they were doing their finishing touches on the teleplay for Assignment Earth, Joan Pierce from the Forest Research, who went through the Star Trek scripts to try to make sure that they were accurate and right and historically correct, basically flagged Roddenberry and said, you're launching a nuclear platform in this episode. But back in January of 67, we had this treaty sign that prohibited this. So she basically said, you can't do this, but that would have meant gutting a major plot point for this episode. So Roddenberry basically ignored her. (laughs) What? It's secret. No one knew about it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't it, uh, this is one where i don't have a problem with it at all is it is it conceivable that we could have been trying to do something like that absolutely sure, and it's absolutely. worth having the 
and the thing about science fiction is that science fiction gives us the opportunity to discuss ideas that haven't necessarily happened. Right. And that's part of what's going on in this episode. So I'm totally cool with that. Also, uh, in his Star Trek novel called Forgotten History, author Christopher Bennett dated the events of Assignment Earth as happening on April 4th. So that's kind of cool. We're at the brig, and there's a guard standing outside of the cell where Gary Seven is standing there looking at his force field. He kind of touches it, gets a shock. Guard kind of looks over at him. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out the servo because apparently they didn't search the guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the, again, this like this is a clear piece of powerful technology. You should have frisked the guy before you put him in the brig. That's just basic smart things to do. But it doesn't but, matter. You know, guys in red shirts aren't necessarily the smartest ones in the bunch. No, they're not. I'm just saying. Uh <laughs> And, uh, you know, so he has a pen. So what? What is he going to write checks at us? <laughs> um, and I, I will say when he pops that thing out and Darren, it's great looking at yours. When that thing opens up and the two little antenna come up. It's the coolest thing ever. It's a really cool prop. And you know what? It took me all these years. But rewatching this episode, I thought of the sonic screwdriver from Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And they were developed at exactly the same time. They were developed within months of each other. Oh wow! That's there was no cool. there was no crosstalk as far as we know between the BBC and uh, and Desilu. It, it was Hodgkin's law of parallel development. There, in yeah. apparently, yeah. apparently, <laughs> one thing I really like. You know, we we we've criticized Star Trek at this point a bit for not for running out of ideas that there've been things that they've repeated a lot. And one of the, I think there are a lot of really cool new ideas as part of assignment earth. And one of them after he uses his servo to get him through the brig is he shoots the guard who leans back and smiles. Yeah. And he says, "Tired go to sleep." I love it. I, I think that's a great new sci-fi device that we have. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And and it shows that it gives the audience a clue that Gary 7 may in fact be telling the truth. And that we should trust him because he's he's not killing anybody. He's not doing anyone any harm. Um, that this might be a, a trustable character and the audience will be with him. That's a really great point that throughout the course of the episode, up until the last moment, like you're not quite sure. You, you, you have Kirk's doubt up until that last moment when he says go. And but at the same time. There is such a nobility to the way Lansing plays him that you want to believe that he is telling the truth. Yeah. Um, we're back in the briefing room. and Bones comes in with his medical report that this guy is in perfect, perfect shape. And again, this doesn't solve our problem because he could be just a perfect human. Or if an alien needed a body, well, you'd want to get a perfect one. Be inclined to prepare a perfect one. This last part of Act One is actually directed really, really well, and that's Absolutely, Mark Daniels. Kirk and Spock are in the briefing room, and then the cat runs out. Security alert. All decks alert. Prisoners escaped. All decks alert. This is the captain. Inform us. Transporter circuit shows someone preparing to beam down. Try to override. Shut it off. You know, we're, we're back in the transporter room, and, and this is what I love is that Mr. Seven, he's so cool, so calm, so collected. I know ISIS will really gone before they get here. 
hear the transporter beam building up, and then they get on the transporter platform, and then Kirk and Spock, you know, run in, and they try to reverse the controls, but it's too late. It's just really suspenseful. It's It's so great. (laughs) I I just think it's so great. And Star Trek was always really well directed in that way. Look at episodes like, you know, the Doomsday Machine and Bread and Circuses, where you have these like, you know, edge of your seat moments that still work today. They knew how to drive those ag brakes. Absolutely. (laughs) And we come back in at two. And to me, this is like the crossroads, because if this was an episode of Star Trek, then we would stay with Kirk and Spock and the crew of the Enterprise with the dilemma of, oh, no, this guy just beamed down to Earth. We don't know if he's a good guy or bad guy. That's how the Star Trek episode goes. But this actually isn't really a Star Trek episode in a lot of ways because we don't go with them. We go with Gary Seven. We see the New York City skyline. We go into his office where this weird safe opens up and fog, smoke, purple light or whatever comes out. And he appears. Again, this is creating a new technology and a new look for something. I wonder why, since he actually used the Enterprise's transporter, why he ends up looking like he transported in with his technology rather than Star Trek technology. Um But now we're going to spend some time with Gary Seven. And this is my question. Have we, Star Trek tends to be a show, the original series, where you stick with the points of view of the crew of the Enterprise. Have we ever gone with a guest star for anything more than 30 seconds or a minute? Not in TOS. Yeah. In in Next Generation. Sure, you do. Absolutely. But uh, never in TOS. I think the only other time we spent such an extended period with a guest star I'd have to say just off the top of my head is third season. Is there in truth, no beauty, uh, all Mm. the scenes between Marvick and Miranda when he's professing his love to her. But, but I mean that that was not as, as involved as, as these scenes that you're talking about now with seven in his uh, apartment with the, with the cat and, you know, Roberta's about to walk in. And meanwhile, you have seven holding ISIS looking out the window, really just, judging the 20th century. You're right, Isis, it is primitive. Incredible that people can exist like this. But then Seven brings on his computer, which I still think is a cool effect, the way it comes out of the wall. It's great. I think it's a really cool design, too, because it isn't the Star Trek aesthetic. It's a new aesthetic, and I I really like it. There's a little Star Trek aesthetic in it. Sure. But it is certainly... Alien and, uh, you know, the little cube on his desk that he uses yeah. to turn it on is pretty darn cool, too. Uh, but, you know, the whole James Bond thing or uh, even Batman thing of it coming out of the wall is uh, is really neat. And I really wanted a Beta 5 computer. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, and now we're going to get it's so funny because when you write a pilot, you're go, you go like, OK, I got to establish all these characters, all these conflicts, all these situations, all this backstory. And one of them is very obviously the computer talks back. And what they do, which is so funny, is this is all an exposition dump. Yep. But they make it pretty entertaining because he's arguing with the computer yeah. about and, getting the information uh, out. And Barbara Babcock, who provides the voice, is uh, is so good at uh, at being mechanical, yet being very obstinate. You know, Barbara Babcock really contributed a whole lot to Star Trek. I mean, not just on camera as uh, uh, Maya in uh, Taste of Armageddon and in Plato's Stepchildren, but she was Troy's mother. She's the voice of the M5. 
And she's, I, and I didn't know this until many, many years beta later. Five. Beta, the beta five, right. The M5 was, was doing. <laughs> yes. Um, she was also the voice of the Tholian in the Tholian web, which. That's <laughs> right. That's right. I keep forgetting about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I am a beta five computer capable of analytical decisions. Please confirm identity as supervisor by describing nature of agents and mission here. Computer, I caution you, I have little love for Beta 5 snobbery. Override. What we hear, and again, this is just, it is a clever exposition dump, is that the computer goes, how do I know who you are who you say you are? Why don't you explain everything that's yeah. going on? You tell exactly who you are and what your mission is. Problem. Earth technology and science has progressed faster than political and social knowledge. Purpose of mission? To prevent Earth civilization from destroying itself before it can mature into a peaceful society and i can see that in the pitch that was handed <laughs> to nbc <laughs> like this is what this show is about and uh, we also find out that uh, gary seven that's his code name he is supervisor 194 he is a class one supervisor but this is an exposition dump done in a way that feels natural and organic. Absolutely. Well, and part of that is you got good actors. You got a yep. good voice on the computer. You created a conflict, and Robert Lansing knows how to do his stuff. Location of agents unreported for three days. Why didn't you say so in the first place? No, don't answer that. The other thing about the computer, about about the uh, uh, Beta 5, is this uh, tension between the Beta 5 and Gary 7 was there a computer in another show up to this point, Doc, that where you had the computer instigating your protagonist? <laughs> uh, only in that episode where they had uh, uh, replaced the computer uh, computer personality with a female one. Oh, oh, uh, in uh, yeah. uh, Carl's uh, yesterday. Carl's uh, yesterday. Yeah, because right. it also reminded me of that Battlestar Galactica episode with Cora. Oh, with Cora. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Cora and Starbuck. Uh, I think yep. that was uh, the Long Patrol. <laughs> sure, I think you're right. There you go. I, I would bet money, and I don't remember, but at some point I bet they turned the robot evil and lost in space. And I, I bet. I just assumed that that had to have happened. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I mean, it was so funny because I watched all those shows, and I have almost no memory of them at all. <laughs> um, and, and what's weird is, is that, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, 2001 is just coming out right now. You that's know. right. Oh, that's right. In April. That's right. You know. Wow. In um, fact, just a couple weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. April third. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Depends I mean, on where you were, but yeah. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely less than a month after the ultimate computer came out. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, we're back on the Enterprise. We got some transporter coordinates around where Gary Seven beamed down, and of course, the big problem is if we interfere with anything, we could mess up the future too. Um, which we already know, of course, from City on the Edge of Forever. We're back to Gary Seven. And again, I will say this is more evidence that this is not a Star Trek show. Because what we hear is that everyone's getting upset about these nukes going into orbit. And Gary Seven says, It's the same kind of nonsense that almost destroyed planet Omicron 4. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that just proves that it is a Star Trek episode, because that's the kind of reference that gets thrown around all the time. Yeah, that is 100 percent true. But what, give, I, what I will say two real references and then a space reference. Right. Totally. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, that the, is the, 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 they talk about uh, the fundamental declarations of the Martian colonies and right, the statutes right. of Alpha three. You know? That's <laughs> yeah. right. They go one so, or two steps further. <laughs> but but the thing about this is if the essential conflict 
in start in the Star Trek world is is Gary Seven a bad guy? Right. This line tells the audience he is not. Mm-hmm. Right. The audience now knows he's a good guy, and that's why. And so that tension for the Star Trek conflict doesn't exist so much. You know, well, it, the tension still exists because we know that Kirk doesn't know this. Right. Absolutely. And we need to figure out what Kirk is going to do because we know that Kirk can do some rather rash things, and we hope he doesn't. You you know what it is? It's funny. Scott's heard me talk about these terms uh, before, but the, the, there's an idea which you're probably familiar with is that the audience can either be behind the, the characters, with the characters, or ahead of the characters. Yep. And most of the time in Star Trek, we're with the characters. Right. We are with James T. Kirk, knowing what he knows, figuring out what he's figuring out. Absolutely. And this is one of the rare cases where we are ahead of him. That's we right. know Gary Seven's cool, but he doesn't know this yet. And that's where the tension comes in. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. Mission of Agents 201 and 347. Set malfunction on United States rocket. Progress of mission. Has the rocket been set to malfunction? Negative. No progress. It's pretty cool because you know you you see you, then they they bring up the launch pad and uh, on the on the little view screen and uh, you see what's actually about to happen and you're wondering what's he going to do? What yeah. what the heck is going to happen here? Computer, record the following. Unless agents are found immediately, I must undertake their mission. I love seeing Kirk and Spock in in, in modern day uniforms. It's, yeah, uniform yeah. Clothes. It's funny. It's century fun. uniforms, clothing. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's it's always fun for me. And they're basically getting directions from Scotty. And then we hear some really fun music, and we see this young blonde woman do a little date. You know the dance where you're facing someone and you're trying to go left or trying to go right. She right. does a little dance with them. And this, of course, is Terry Gar. Terry Gar, Terry Gar in a Star Trek episode playing Roberta Lincoln. Terry Gar is an Oscar nominee for Tootsie. She has done absolute classic films, like all-time classic films, Young Frankenstein, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Oh God, The Black Stallion, a totally underrated film called One from the Heart, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Mr. Mom, one of my favorite movies, After Hours, directed by Scorsese. She was on TV uh, in those early days on shows like That Girl. She was on the Sunny and Sure Comedy Hour. And she was on McLeod with the uh, – what's his name? Dennis McLeod. Dennis Weaver. Dennis Weaver, thank you. Yes. I was going to say Darren McGavin, but that's the Night Stalker. <laughs> um, so first of all, is Terry Gar the biggest star ever to appear on Star Trek, on the original series? How would, how well, would Terry, she I mean, certainly wasn't at the time. No, no. I'm saying who became – did anyone become a movie star after Star Trek? Well, hmm. You could say Other that. Other than – hmm. Other than Shatner and Nemo. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, but, then, but, but I'm saying as a guest star coming on, I think I she's think the one who had the biggest career. Could be, but I think Ted Cassidy was the biggest star at the time. Well, by his eyes. He was already on. Absolutely. No, no, no. He was already on uh, uh, Adam's Family, and sure. uh, he was extremely well-known at that time. But in terms of stuff he did afterwards, I mean, you know, other than uh, playing the second Bigfoot in Six Million Dollar Man, uh, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> also, Joan yeah, Collins. No, I, I think she, Joan Collins. Joan Collins absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then and then uh, Ricardo Montalban got really big with uh, Fantasy Island. Yeah. Those are the big ones. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, 
I just have to say, just because, uh, so Scott, you, we did On the Cinephiles, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, yep. which is a fantastic movie with Terry Garr. And then yeah. years later, and I just want to bring this up, which I never thought about before, when Carl Reiner passed away, we did Oh God on the Cinephiles. Right. And Oh God is a movie I absolutely adore. It totally holds up. And what it didn't occur to me is it was shot the same year as Close Encounters of the Third That's Kind. Right. In Close Encounters. She plays someone who is married to a guy who has this crazy vision. And she doesn't believe it. And he has to follow this dream. Yeah. And she's totally unsupportive. And in the same year, in Oh God, she plays someone who's married to this guy who has this crazy vision, who has to follow it. And in Oh God, she ends up being supportive. I mean, it's just so bizarre that she played those two parts in the same year. There's sort of a funny story about the casting of Close Encounters that Steven Spielberg tells in various commentaries and interviews that he says that he had no idea who Terry Gar was, but that he saw her in like a, a dishwasher detergent commercial and thought, well, she just looks like the, you know, absolute average American housewife. And that was his story of why he cast her. Ha, ha. B.S. Yeah, he of never course saw he saw her in Star Trek. He was a huge fan of Star Trek. Of course he had seen her there. Yeah, uh, and of course on, you probably Steve. saw her in Young Frankenstein. Are you kidding? Of course, Who didn't see Young Frankenstein. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think she's one of those great bubbly personalities. She's amazing. She's the yeah. best. She's amazing. She's the best. Ron, um, Ron, Ron a hey. <laughs> um and she uh by the way, that performance is uh, she's up against comedy titans, and she's a beginner in that movie. She's so good. You know, but she Put totally holds her own. Candle- Back. <laughs> um, but we digress. Um, and right now we see that Robert Lansing, uh, the Gary Seven, he's got some IDs from the NSA, from the police, from the CSA, and that he's looking at some plans of the McKinley rocket base. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it, and at this moment, Terry Garr comes into the office, finds no one there, and says, Looks like your lucky day, Roberta. Can't dock you if they don't know you're late. <laughs> There's Gary, and he says, where have you been? Uh, oh, the subway got stopped. Where have you been for the past three days? He thinks, he that, thinks that she is one of the agents. Right, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know how I said about people doing dumb stuff that ends up being totally entertaining? Gary Seven is a moron in this scene. Like, you've come from another planet. You have all this technology. You see this woman who you've never seen before. Apparently, you don't know what your agents look like. And you just reveal the whole thing. <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, he, th- he, he thinks that she's uh, uh, agent, uh, I think, 201. 201. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because he asks, where's 347? And she says. With 348? <laughs> um, no, the responses are not necessary. And again, you're being real dumb, Gary Seven. Uh <laughs> And he's also being pretty scary because she's talking about calling the police and he orders her to sit down. Who do you think you are? I said sit down. Okay. I'll say one thing for you. Play your role well. And then he asks for a report. She's in front of the typewriter, puts the paper in the typewriter, and she, yeah, she starts to type, which is what you would do. Well, how and do you expect a- me to type? With my nose? <laughs> and, and then it the starts typing. Type Another form. great bit of uh, of Gary Seven uh, technology that we sure. have now. Yes, true. that's true. <laughs> that's, that's very true. That still doesn't really work perfectly. <laughs> well, <you> know, <laughs> I have to say, the first time that I got a voice recognition uh, text on my computer, 
I dictated Gary Seven's last uh, uh, entry uh, <laughs> because it's it seemed the perfect thing to do. You sat Clearly. there. Did you, did you put your feet up on the desk? I, I put my feet up and I and I put my hands behind my head. Oh, um, that's very cool. <laughs> there, there's an experience I've had doing uh, auditions is, is that when you when you write something, <laughs> you you hope that someone can handle your you know do the material that they do it justice. And sometimes you're doing auditions, someone will come in and they don't quite get it all. They don't get all the jokes. They don't quite nail every moment. And you go, that's too bad. Then someone comes in and they get it all. They understand everything that you wrote and they they really get all that stuff correct. And they plus it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Your goal is when someone comes in and they do it better. They find new things that you never occurred to you. That's what Terry Gar is doing when she's telling the typewriter to stop. It's typing everything I'm saying. No right. I mean, yes, the right. The lines might have been on the page, but no writer is able to do what Terry Gar, with her personality, can do in that moment. That does it. I quit. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're, I'm quitting right now. You're not acting, are right. <laughs> you? Acting. I'm, I'm leaving. leaving. <laughs> and he locks her in, and he touches this box, and again. So now he's found out that this person that he thought was the agent, who he already revealed a bunch of technology to, is just an ordinary human. And what is his next choice? to reveal even more crazy technology to this person. Uh, because now the computer says, Roberta Lincoln, human profession, secretary, employed by 347 and 201. And then the computer goes into her physical specs yeah, and yeah. then goes into her birthmarks. <laughs> and I love that she finally hits the cube and says, hey, watch it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I get, you know what? Another thing that makes Simon Earth so great is the way it shifts tones because, you know, you had this dramatic beginning, you know, with seven beam aboard the enterprise and, you know, you, you spent all this time with seven alone and then Roberta walks in and it becomes something very different. And the comic timing is actually really good. I mean, of course, Terry Gar's comic timing is, is perfection, but even Robert Lansing steps up without, I mean, he's very true to his character but even he, in his own sort of like dry way, is still quite funny with her. It's a classic straight man, funny man, or funny woman setup. Yeah. That Lansing's going to be straight, and she's going to be the funny person, and they play off each other really well. Watching it this time, I was like, you know what? I'm totally in for this series. I think this relationship, as something we're going to follow on a series, looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. You know? Yes. Exactly. And you know what? In terms, in terms of Gary Seven not knowing what the agents look like. Keep in mind that one of the agents might be an animal. Oh. So oh. it's only at this point that I that I realize why that could happen. That she might be in the in the human form that the animal takes. You know? Oh so, I never thought of that, Doc. Yeah. Wow. I never Not had once in my this life. Moment. Oh my god. I never gosh. thought of it. And and my first reaction when you said that was to go, no, no, it can't be. And then my second reaction is, well, he came alone with an animal partner. Yeah. Yeah. I I might very well be. I never I, in 55 years thought of that, but wow, you just blew my mind. <laughs> so my my guess, my guess is that that was never the intention in the script that Roddenberry never not. thought of that. Of course. But not. I love it. I love it. I think it's <laughs> yeah. a great idea. Um and I love the awkward moment where, you know, sheepishly, Gary Seven says, What kind of work did your employers say they were doing here? 
research for a new encyclopedia? And he has kind of no response. She goes, no. And he shakes his head. Now, here is where I think Gary Seven's real smart because he, he in a Kirk-like fashion, switches gears in a way that really works. First, he says, all right, you can go. Of course, if you do, you won't be helping your country. Unless you don't care about that. That's another great point. I never thought about that. He is doing what Kirk would have done. Yeah. Of course, and of course he is because Roddenberry wrote the episode. <laughs> sure, I care. What do you think I am? I don't know, Miss Lincoln, what you are. Not yet. All I know is that my incompetence has made you aware of some very secret devices that are vital to the security of this nation. And Steve, by the way, everything you said about the missteps that Gary Seven has made so far, here you have Gary Seven himself admitting that he's made missteps mm-hmm. with Roberta Lincoln. Yep. And this is why he very was very lucky he had those badges, because now he flashes her CIA, his CIA badge, to which she replies, Very groovy. Very groovy, very sixties. <laughs> I have it's so it's something that just always stands out like a sore th- thumb is, uh, ma- is middle aged people trying to write the language of the young people of the day, and trying to show like they get it. I mean, obviously the space hippies is the worst version of this, but this one it, it just sticks out like a sore thumb when she says things like very groovy. Hi there, fellow teenagers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I couldn't write cool teenagers when I was a teenager. Yeah. And much less write something like that today. Well, thank you, Isis. I'll be... Again, you're dumb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's noticed what's going on. I, I think there's a reason Gary Seven is usually a supervisor. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe not such a good field agent. <laughs> That's actually the point. Uh, Spock and Kirk come out of the elevator. Scotty gives them directions and it's door 12B to which they ring the bell and Roberta answers and Kirk doesn't play this all that smooth. Where's Mr. Seven? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Listen, you guys can't come in here. What I love is that William Shatner and Terry Garr are acting in a scene together. I was really taking that in watching it this time. I was like, oh, William Shatner, Terry Garr, Leonard Nimoy, Terry Garr. That's very, very cool. <laughs> Even though I have to say, and I know, Doc, you know this too, that Terry Garr was not exactly thrilled with her experience shooting Assignment Earth. One of the reasons being is because Roddenberry was very involved with the production of this episode, which is why he got that producer credit at the end of the episode. And one of the areas that Roddenberry was very involved in was the wardrobe. And when yeah. Terry Garr was putting her wardrobe on, like he wanted her skirt to be higher, more revealing. And the wardrobe costume designer, Bill Tice, got a little annoyed and irritated with Roddenberry. And so did Terry Garr because she was like, okay, yeah, I get what's going on. So, so Terry Garr hasn't really talked about Star Trek too much over these years uh, it, it doesn't sound like she really enjoyed the experience. Her her performance uh, uh, has no tinge of n- non-enjoyment. Exactly. So. Yeah. It looks like she's having a great time. <laughs> I mean, honestly, for actresses in this era and actresses in any era, this is a big thing. And I, I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but when we did Oh God, there's a commentary track on the on the disc, and it's Carl Reiner, the director, Larry Gelbart, the writer, who's one of the great writers of all time, speaking of yep. Tootsie, mm-hmm. and it's Terry Garr. And they're talking, and I'm telling you, throughout this commentary track, Larry Gelbart and 
Carl Reiner makes so many comments about Terry Garr's body, her legs, how sexy she was, how young and hot she was, how everyone couldn't stop staring at her on the set. And it made me so uncomfortable. And obviously, they're a different generation and times have changed in the way we talk about people. But I just could hear and you could hear in Terry's voice, her joking back with them, because that's what she had to do. And I could hear the discomfort. And it was just this weird, like, you know, 20 years later, I'm still dealing with this crap. You know, well, yeah, I have yeah. I have heard Terry Garr's autobiography read oh. by herself, and I'm not I'm not sure that she's uncomfortable with that kind of thing. Uh, she seems like she at least when she did the autobiography, mm-hmm. that she was very cool with all that. She knew what her role was in a lot of these things. And apparently she was a very cool chick to hang out with in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Uh, let me just say that. I'm um, sure she was, you know, she was not uh, uh, sheltered or or surprised at uh, why she was being hired. She knew and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, she made very good use of it through all her uh, performances. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily, you know, give the uh, tortured actress uh, tale on this one. Okay. Yeah, I will. Having not read her autobiography, I will defer to you. It's, it's very good. It's very good. And sad now that I know she has, I think, MS. MS, yeah. Retire. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, there's, by the way, a lot going on in this scene because as Kirk and Spock have rushed into the office to find Gary Seven, Gary Seven in his in the inner office has pushed down a pen. As you said, it's James Bond. It's Batman. The the safe, you know, the, the bar opens up, revealing well, the safe, revealing which opens the safe, up. Revealing yeah. the, the cloud room. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, power, which, the transporter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and he goes and disappears, and Spock and Kirk are heading in to look there, okay. and Roberta, Terry Garr, has picked up the phone to call the police, and Kirk manhandles her. Give me the phone. Oh, get your hands off of me, you big jerk. What do you think you are? He hands her off to Spock, and she's yelling. And while Roberta is struggling with Spock, she... Hustle. Yeah, yeah, they, she takes off she his hat. She removes his hat. What are you... <laughs> Kirk shoots the door, goes in, and sees the mist finishing and the doors closing because we just missed Gary Seven. And where does Gary Seven end up? We see a big sign that says liquid hydrogen, and we hear. When it's actually the fiberglass shop on the Paramount lot. Oh, is that oh that is? Yes. there you go. Nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the stock footage that we see is of the Saturn V rocket on the launch pad getting ready to launch Apollo 4 at Cape Canaveral. And we hear a voice in the background for Mission Control, which, Doc, I believe is James Doohan. Is that right? Yeah, I believe it's James Doohan. Gary Seven is looking up at that Saturn V. Yep. And he's looking (laughs) at it with menacing eyes. So you're still like, what is he doing? What's he going to do? You, you don't know. What's he going to do? And and is he a good guy or not? So I had to look after watching act two, I had to go do some math. And what I did was I added up all the Kirk and Spock scenes to see how long they were because <laughs> in act two, because act two is 13 minutes and 32 seconds long of which two minutes and 48 seconds include Kirk and Spock. So wow. that's 11 minutes of assignment earth and two minutes and 48 seconds of start. All right, all right. Let me just stop you right there. Steve, you you did that? <laughs> yeah, I did math. It didn't take me very long. It well, I gotta hard. say that I, I see that is why 
you know, you're the perfect person to be doing this podcast with. <laughs> well, I won't know all the all the trivia and bits and pieces that you know about Star Trek, but I am good at uh, looking at a timeline and seeing how long a shot is. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> Open up in there, police. Cops draw their guns and head in. Wide scan, Scotty. We'll be moving. Spock in here. Now, Scotty, what's going on here? And they beam them all up. They beat all four, including the two cops. One of the cops, who is Bruce Mars from Shore Leave. Is it? One of the cops that they beam up is Bruce Mars, who played Finnegan in Shore Leave. Yeah. I didn't catch that. And now, now I want to look at it again. This is why, Steve, you can count like how many minutes... Yeah. Gary Seven had and how many minutes Kirk and Spock had. And I'll tell you, that was the guy from Shore Leave. <laughs> this is what true partnership is all about. Yes. Um, and, and by the way, their reaction to the bridge and the slow turn and the guy saying, and by the way, his reaction and standing there on the platform in the transporter room and looking around going, Charlie. Good comedic moment. And some great scoring from uh, Trouble with Tribbles at that moment. Yes. Yes. We're back with some stock footage in the on the rocket base. We're, it's now 50 minutes to launch. And we have the control room and yes. their version of mission control, which, as you said, Darren, small. It's, it's small because, obviously, it's a it's a secondary room that is overlooking the main control right. room. Uh, but still, it's... It's the best they could do. And I'm I'm pretty sure a couple of those pieces in the set are from the bat computer. Oh, yeah, sure. Speak to your moment. Yeah, sure, sir. And he hands him his NSA ID. And Gary Seven gives the southern accent to the guy. I have to confirm this, Colonel. All right. Oh, uh, just put the cat down. Keep your hands at your side. All right. And he gets over to the phone to call uh, in security. And the cat screeches, and Gary Seven uses that opportunity to shoot this sergeant with his servo. And this guy's even happier than the red guy on the Enterprise. Yeah, that sergeant, uh, base sergeant Lipton, is uh, the actor's name is Lincoln Demian. Demian. There's an old style weather satellite in orbit below us. If I could bounce off it, I could get some good views. I would say the stock footage is really cool. There's way too many shots. It, it, there's a lot of things in this episode where I go like, man, they. They really slowed things down. Like there, there's not a lot going on at this point. That uh, I agree that that the the, the the episode does kind of slow down. But at the same time, uh, I still still think all the the stock footage that they use, especially when Scotty is in the transporter room, he's bouncing off of the uh, weather satellite weather to, get, to yeah. get all the different uh, all the different points of view of the Saturn V on the or the rocket getting ready to launch. I, I think all that stuff is really cool. I was such a big space junkie a big fan of the space race of the sixties. So to see all those different shots of the, of the Saturn five, just still is very impressive. I think for people, younger people listening to us right now, you, you, they should know that this was the number one thing on TV was the space race. I mean, when everybody was tuned into these things. So if you're watching Star Trek, seeing this footage, this was really exciting footage. Launch director at Gantry beginning final check. I just, I was like, man, now this looks like a 60s show. You know what I mean? Like a classic sort of like Mission Impossible, like, you know, those late 60s color TV shows. It totally looks like that. We see the guy who's the, you know, head of mission control, Mr. Cromwell. And I was thinking, you know, we, we all saw edited versions or I know, Scott, your versions were not edited. 
I think a bunch of this was cut out of the version I watched over and over again. I don't remember most of the stuff with Cromwell and stuff. I don't remember it as a kid. Darren, when you were watching Star Trek growing up, were you watching the episodes stripped for syndication? Not at first. Yeah. Uh, Because I I remember having recordings of complete episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in later showings, they absolutely took out that extra five minutes. They, they were butchered. It was awful. Like, I mean, I like when I was growing up uh, in the 70s watching the show on Channel 17 in Philadelphia, you know, right. the, the good thing was that they showed the complete episodes that were not that were not cut, but they were they were showing the episodes on real to real film and the colors were really faded and it was mm-hmm. a little blurry, but it was, it was still the complete episode. So when the DVDs came out and then the Blu-rays and oh yeah, like, like I really blew my mind how you know the, the the clarity of it. I think that most of those syndicated packages were on actually sixteen millimeter film. They were so they yeah. were they were downgraded and put in the film chains that way, which is appalling. I Off, mean, you know, yeah, regular NTSC video, even when it has a clear signal, is terrible. But yep. uh, we we grew up with Star Trek looking really bad. Yeah, we did. We did. Honestly, everything like all those VHS tapes I had as a kid, looking at compared to even a you know a, a DVD, they look terrible. All that yeah. stuff looked terrible. I think this show is shot really differently when we're with Gary Seven, particularly in this sequence around the the rocket, because he gets out of the trunk of the car, and we hear that we're going to lock the elevator on the top, and we see the elevator going up. It's all really slow. I think I do like the moving backdrop that we see as Gary's going up in the elevator back on the rocket base. Here's the transporter. Kirk and Spock beam in and we hear three. One move and you have both had it. Yeah, this is, this is really where you go, man, like they really don't have a whole lot to do once they, once seven beams off the enterprise, there's just not not enough for them to do, and this is really where it's this is really where you feel like they're they're guests in their in their own episode because they're going to spend the next like ten minutes just kind of standing there waiting for their their break to grab the communicator. Yeah, well, they're they're left standing around watching the episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and they don't do anything particularly smart. They don't seem to have a plan. They don't, you know, there's not. They're just kind of beaming to a rocket base, hoping to find a guy. Well, remember if they, if they were smart. And they were able to, you know, get to seven. Uh, the world will end. Uh, I mean, oh, honestly, right. if the Enterprise didn't happen to be doing historical research, everything would have been fine. Been fine. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, we're back with uh, Terry Gar, who's talking to the little box. All right, don't answer. But you can tell him I quit. And I love this beat change for her. And you can tell him I promise not to tell anybody anything. He's safe. And you're safe, my little green friend. That's where Terry Gar is like adding. She's just Terry Gar in it up, you know, yep, uh-huh, adding totally. all that personality. Yeah, she totally is. And as she's talking to the little box, she leans back on the desks, hits that same pen. And now the big safe opens up and she gets to look into that uh, transporter, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and again, I go, man, this is not <laughs> it's a cool Batman thing, but maybe you needed to have a better lock on your high tech safe. <laughs> well, you know. The the only thing the only problem happens when she just starts pressing buttons. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but no one else was supposed to be in that room except for Gary yeah. Gary Seven. We get some more stock footage, and then this 
total studio shot of him crawling across a gantry oh, with yeah. ISIS with a just, you know, like a background up there. And he's talking to ISIS. He opens up a panel. He's doing something on it. We're in our mini control room. And of course, the guards are picking up the phasers and playing with them. You've got a chance and I'll offer it only this once. Slightest possible charges will be brought against you. If you identify yourselves and tell us why you're here. I don't believe that at all. If you're launching a nuclear missile into space, two unidentified guys show up without IDs, with weird technology, and you go, look, just tell me who you are and we'll let you go. No. Yeah, it's true. not going to happen. No countdown delay. Repeat, no delay. All systems are green and go. And this is, again, I think this time is really slow. Scotty is zooming in from image to image. And I can get even closer. Yeah, yeah. I can get even closer. And, <laughs> and we didn't put... Kirk and Spock in the brig. We didn't handcuff them. We didn't do anything. They're literally just standing right next to the guy in charge of this small mission control right at this moment. Scotty zooms in again. And strangely enough, the angle which he's seeing Gary Seven from is the exact same angle we were looking at him from that's clearly in the TV show. He's bouncing the TV show off of the uh, weather stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just called Jerry Finnerman and said, Look, where'd you put that camera? <laughs> That's where I want it. That's where I'm bouncing it through. And Scotty decides that he's going to beam him up. At the same moment that this is happening, Terry Gar is playing with the safe, which I'm like, how did she figure out how to open it? Because uh, it's clearly not a very good safe. And it seems like I think Gary Seven can feel that he's about to be beamed up right yeah, before he Yeah, goes. this was interesting. Like you, you see him grab ISIS and it's like he hears the transporter beam coming for him, which I think you hear this is enterprise transporter. Right. Right. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. He shows up on the enterprise and then he disappears again. I had him and something yanked him away. And now he reappears back in the safe with Terry Gar. What are you doing? I wasn't finished. I'm sorry. I just put some gun right there and then wow. Again, it seems a fairly unbelievable thing that she just randomly hit some buttons and happened to pull him off of the Enterprise. Intercepted the Enterprise trying to beam me on board. Again, he's just revealing all sorts of stuff to her. Um, we're back with Kirk and Spock, who basically say we're powerless and helpless, and then we leave them because they're just going to stand there for a while. Uh, <laughs> and we're back with Gary Seven. We hear it's 30 seconds to launch, and now Roberta is truly suspicious. Look, uh, hey, I mean, like, uh, not even the CIA could do all this. And we hear the countdown, we hear ignition, and we see that rocket go off. That rocket, of course, is Apollo 4, and that was launched in 1967, and it was the first launch of a Saturn V rocket. It was unmanned, and that image of the Saturn V lifting off uh, from the aerial view, looking down on the rocket, has been used so many times over the years, of course, including MTV back in the early 80s when MTV was oh. playing music videos. But that is a famous launch. And the, the launch of Apollo 4 was very, very successful, practically flawless. It was the launch of Apollo 6, which happened the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. That was the one that was problematic. And right. Werner von Braun, who was the rocket scientist, uh, literally the rocket scientist who uh, created and designed the Saturn V rockets, fixed the pogo problem in time for Apollo 8 to lift off uh, at the end of 1968. 
And uh, of course, we have those great uh, uh, photos of the Earth uh, in the distance uh, while they're going around the moon. But I'm digressing here. But yes, this now, is I Apollo could, 4 that's launching. I could be wrong, but when we see the, the footage of Apollo 4 launching, do they not play the Apollo theme from uh, uh, from uh, uh, Oh, I, now I have to go back and listen. I, I hear it in my mind, but I could oh. be wrong. It's bomb and it takes off. All right. I, gonna, I, I'm I not sure it could be, it could be that other theme that they played before, but I seem to remember at some point they played that. And I think if they did, it's a hilarious in joke that that's, I, I got to go back and watch it again. I thought like when they were, when the rocket was launching, they didn't play any music, but uh, I could be wrong. Now they, well, I, they did at the, at the act out, they played some music. It might have been that uh, bum, 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 bum. Ba, 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 I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they I think that's what it was, actually. Music if they didn't. It, it could I very guarantee- well be. Go ahead. Uh, oh, well, I guarantee that by the time people out there are listening to this episode, after I've edited they it, they we will have an answer to this question. <laughs> and you will hear what music was, in fact, playing at the end of Act 3. <laughs> in Act 4... The rocket is now passing the 20 miles arc and Gary seven is asking the computer basically if he can still take over the rocket. And what I love is now we have this new twist because as he's talking about taking over the rocket, we see Terry Gar watching him and getting more and more suspicious. Yeah. She's, she's scared is what she is. Yeah. She grabs the phone and he grabs his little servo and shoots the cable Yep. He locks the door. Standing by to begin malfunction as planned. And that gets a look from, from Roberta. And then we start hearing things about the nuclear warhead now being armed. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine you meet this guy, you're like the secretary, and suddenly he's talking about arming a nuclear warhead and making a malfunction happen. Yeah. This guy could be a supervillain. Yeah, well, here we are. That, the audience is thinking the same thing. The audience yep. is thinking, holy cow, were we wrong about him? Yep. Yeah. No, we're into act four and we yeah. still, now we're, we're leaning back towards, well, wait a minute. Maybe this guy seven is, is not a good guy. He's, you know, wants to take this thing off course and he wants to arm the warhead. None of that is good. <laughs> and we see Roberta move very quietly and she grabs this big metal box off the desk Yep. back in mission control. They're freaking out because this, this missile has now armed itself and they, can't figure out why and How they could go, the missile arm itself <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and, and and i go why are we talking to the security guard why was mission control talking to him <laughs> um, and kirk gets to the communicators and opens it uh and right as that moment is happening roberta hits gary seven with that big metal box and he goes down look i'm sorry but uh, like you asked me, I do care about my country, and you can't be CIA. Orbital platform separating. And he is still focusing on his mission, and he asked the computer for rocket status. You've got to let me finish what I've started, or in six minutes, World War Three begins. I think this is really good. It's great. I think, yeah, I think what's going on here is a great, great conflict. Yep. Um, it's, it's a lot, a lot of suspense, a lot of tension. I mean, it's a, a ticking clock, and it shows mm-hmm. that. Roberta is a character of action as well. Yep. So she is quite capable of taking care of things if need be. 
And also, yeah. you're right. You're right, Darren, because uh, uh, we're, you're seeing growth in her character from this, you know, ditzy person who walks in the office in the beginning of the episode. You know, now you're in Act Four, and she she's taking action to what she thinks is defend her country. She's thinking for herself. She's right. wrong, but that's okay because that's okay. we're we're with her too. Right. Right I mean, now, based, we're on her side. Yeah. I mean, based on the information she's seen, she's making it. Well, and the thing is, you know, I, I didn't mention this before, but there's a line as the computer is describing her. Although behavior appears erratic, possesses high IQ. I think that's that's really key to her character. In Mission Control. Captain, can you read me? I was beaming at Mr. Seven and something yanked him away from me. And our sergeant goes, oh. Hello. Hello. And now, finally, finally, it seems real stupid that they left these two guys just standing there for the last, you know, 20 minutes while we're trying to, while we got a nuclear weapon about to go off. And now, but now finally they're going to do something, which is Spock goes, here, let me help you with that. And gives him the famous Spock neck neck pinch. Destruct is not working. She's still up there. Do you read? Descending and armed. Descending and armed. She'll go off on impact. And the mission control guy reaches his hand to the red phone. Get me the president. Obviously, he means the president of NBC. (laughs) (laughs) And then we're back with Roberta and Gary Seven, and he says, Roberta, you've got to believe me. Look, a truly advanced planet wouldn't use force. They wouldn't come here in alien forms. The best of all possible methods would be to take human beings to their world, train them for generations till they're needed here. This this makes no sense at all. <laughs> Throughout all of Star Trek, we have aliens going to various planets who are more sophisticated, and we've never seen this particular well, c- scenario. Not the smart aliens. Yeah, the only the only reasonable way to do this is That's to right. kidnap people six thousand years ago and then send them back later. Obviously, <laughs> um, and she says, "Mister," and this, by the way, this is the perfect example of the older generation trying to write something for the younger generation. I want to believe you. I I do. I mean, I know this world needs help. That's why some of my generation are kind of crazy and rebels, you know? We wonder if we're going to be alive when we're 30. The last line is great, but the rest of it is just like... I I can feel Terry Garr sort of wincing to get through the line, you know? (laughs) It, it It also goes right into the pitch, because I can see there's going to be a youthful hippie kind of person and and that's going to get the young audience to watch and that's going to represent them and there's going to be the older establishment we're getting conflicts between the older establishment and the young. you could totally feel it in the pitch you know it's a great dynamic actually and it i uh, agree and it, I, I agree you know i i think i think the that the network was silly to uh turn this down because i, think uh, I it agree it's been great I, it, it, and i got news for you uh the folks at cbs are greenlighting all these Star Trek shows hand over fist when they've got this like diamond in the rough with this unused pilot. I I think they've scraped enough of the uh, DNA from this uh, and put it in season two of Picard. Well, that's true. I don't think think we're going to see it again. Yeah, that's a good point. And now with two minutes to launch, here come Kirk and Spock. Hold it right there, Mr. Seven. Oh, no. Spock, you're the expert. Can you detonate the warhead from this computer? I can try, Captain. And now Gary's trying to convince Kirk, which I really wish, I wonder if he could have maybe explained a little more at the very beginning in Act 1. We wouldn't have all these conflicts in Act 4. I want that warhead detonated, too. Unless I do it, at least 100 miles above ground, just barely in time, frighten them out of this arms race. And we hear that all the major powers are on full missile alert. 
Spock. I can estimate some of this, Captain. But without more time. I think Robert Lansing's great in this. He says, Captain, he can only guess. Will you please let me do my job? I don't know what your job is. You may set those controls so we can't detonate that warhead. And at this moment, Roberta, who's been holding the servo, aims it. She suddenly made a decision, which I love, which is she distrusted. She didn't know who Gary Seven was. Then she kind of trusted him. Then she distrusted him. Then she attacked him. And now in the final moment, she decides her, her intelligence, her IQ, tells her to trust him. And she aims the servo at Spock and Kirk and says, listen, you get away from him. And in that moment, Gary Seven grabs her arm. Roberta, be careful. Servo's set to kill. Great, great moment. Great moment that makes you go, okay, he is telling the truth. He just and saved Captain Kirk. Absolutely brilliant, because I don't know how you can tell that it's set to kill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you have, have one. one. You of all people <laughs> yeah. should know. I can't I can't tell what this is set to. Um, well, be careful with it. Don't hurt yourself. <laughs> don't yeah, don't no point kidding. that at yourself. <laughs> um, I I this is really good writing because there is an action that makes us understand that we can trust Gary Seven. That's what yeah. makes it a really well-structured thing. Spock, if you can't handle it, I'm going to have to trust him. And we're running out of time. It's 300 miles and descending and accelerating. Finally, Kirk says, go. 30 seconds and accelerate. Now, Gary talks to the computer. Spock didn't even didn't try to talk right, to the computer. Right. And we hear the countdown and the mu- music is building. I think it's the Doomsday Machine music. Yep, and it's we- the Doomsday Machine yep. music. That's all that's that's the perfect music for yep. that that, you know, big ticking, tension build. Big yeah. tension. Yep, sure. And it still works even in this episode in addition to the Doomsday Machine itself. And we hear that it's 120 miles and then the explosion hit. Phew, 104 and 100 would have been it. Uh, But yes, uh, the mission was completed. And, uh, you know, we we cut to cut to this moment, Doc, that you did. This is your moment. Gary Seven's feet up on the desk, his hands behind his head. And he says, uh, And in spite of the accidental interference with history by the Earth ship from the future, the mission was completed. (laughs) <laughs> and as it turns out as and kirk and spock are standing there back in their starfleet uniforms, in their uniform the enterprise was was part of what was supposed to happen all yeah. along so it's never really a good idea to think too much about star trek time travel rules but if something different had happened and it detonated at 106 miles would the enterprise computers say that that was what was supposed to have happened probably probably yes that's right because <laughs> You know, the the whatever whatever happens is going to be a part of history, and that they're not in an alternate timeline; they're in the actual timeline. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is why there are no good time there are no good time travel rules. None of it works. This is these are the sort of things that that when you try to wrap your head around about time travel and about changing the future, like you know, when you think about Planet of the Apes, that. When uh, Zira and Cornelius go back to 1973, they're laying the groundwork for the Planet of the Apes that Taylor is going to find when he goes to the future in 3972. I mean, it's 
you know, you wrap your head around it and it's like, you can't change history. Everything is always going to happen the way it's supposed to happen. And that's true for Star Trek as well. Well, So everything happened exactly the way it was supposed to. And you'll be pleased our records show that it resulted in a new and stronger international agreement against the use of such weapons. Roberta looks over at the couch and she sees Isis, the cat sitting there. And then she looks over again and she sees a humanoid sitting there, a very pretty, obviously alien type of looking humanoid. Quite female. Quite female. Isis in human form. So for many, with a many diamond years, collar, like with a collar right. similar to what the cat was wearing. Right, exactly. And you hear this human form of Isis pairing, and the pairing was all done by Barbara Babcock. Mm. So for many, many years, it was assumed, it was identified that the actress playing human Isis was Victoria Vetri, who had been uh, a Playboy playmate, among other things. But for many years, Vetri denied playing her. Right. And back in March of 2019, in yeah, an episode very of his short podcast, time ago. yes, which is only a few years ago, in an episode of his podcast, The Trek Files, Star Trek historian Larry Nemechek combed through the Roddenberry archives of Star Trek doc- documents to reveal that it was ac- actually April Tatro who played Isis. Her fee for the day, including makeup and wardrobe, was a whopping $84.51. Well, they didn't go over budget because of her. They yeah. certainly didn't. And in her interview with uh, Larry Nemechek, she said that Shatner asked her out. And she was about to get married in two weeks, but she went out with him anyway. And got to love that Bill Shatner. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so the question is, here's my question. What is the purpose of ISIS? The purpose of ISIS is to uh, be an absolute uh, secret spy. You know, yeah. she, can, she can go where Gary Seven cannot in her, certainly in her animal form, certainly in her woman form as well. What I wonder about the ISIS character is we know that Gary Seven comes from a planet where some aliens were grabbing humans and bringing them over there. Maybe those aliens were able to switch forms and had feline-like forms. Maybe this is actually the species that grabbed Gary Seven. Ah, ISIS is the boss. It could very well be. It could very well be. Uh, that's a very good point, Mr. Morris. Well, this this wrap-up scene is so cool. And it, I mean, it, it obviously is setting up the show that never came. Um, yes. It, it's so, so great because Gary asks, what else do your record tapes show? I'm afraid we can't reveal everything we know, Mr. Seven. Captain, we could say that Mr. Seven and Miss Lincoln have some interesting experiences in store for them. Yes, I think we could say that. The The funny thing is, um, Greg Cox, who is a, a novelist, wrote uh, a couple of books, several books, actually, on uh, the, the Khan pre-story and mm-hmm. how Khan came to be. But he's he also interwove... Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln into the story in, in mm, two wow. of the books. And it's really good. And he goes uh, pretty deep into the backstory and how they worked together. And it's uh, it's very fun. Is that the eugenics wars? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Volume yeah, one, yeah. two, and three. Yeah. There, there, was, so, there, was, there was a lot, a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, fiction written over the years 
that that utilized Roberta and Gary Seven. Yeah, uh, John great Byrne. Characters and it's a great idea. Yeah, it absolutely. is a great yeah, John idea. Byrne. Yeah, John Byrne did a, a limited edition comic book series called Assignment Earth, and uh, uh, there there were in other books as well called there was one called Assignment Eternity, and Gene Roddenberry kind of revisited the concept with his 1974 uh, TV movie, The Quester Tapes, which was also supposed to be uh, a TV series. And uh, what's interesting too about Assignment Earth was if Assignment Earth went to a regular series, Robert Lansing's per episode fee would have been $7,500 per episode, which is a lot of money for 1968. Well, sure. Now, Terry Gar's per episode fee compared to, okay, Robert Lansing, 7,500 per episode. Terry Gar's would have been $550 per episode. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Indeed. I, I would have guessed a lot lower. I mean, I, I would, I wouldn't have guessed that low. I would have, I would have guessed like 1500 or something like that. 500 is real. Yeah. Low. 550 is really, really low, but that brings us to the end of, of uh, that end of act four, the end of uh, Simon Earth as Kirk and Spock beam back to the Enterprise, and the look on Roberta Lincoln's face is uh, really, really cute and charming. And again, I I love this episode. Dorothy Fontana said at the time it was it wasn't the most successful Star Trek episode simply because it was geared to be a possible spinoff. You will always have to sacrifice something when you do that, but it all worked. Worked all right. Gary Seven was an interesting character. Art Wallace, who co-wrote with Roddenberry, said it was a very good pilot. And it's a shame because I think if they had done the series with just Gary Seven, it would have been a very successful show. Terry Gar, going back to what I said earlier about her uh, thoughts on Star Trek, said, thank God it didn't sell. Otherwise, all I would get would be Star Trek questions for the rest of my natural life and probably my unnatural life. <laughs> but Robert Lansing summed it up best short and sweet by saying it was a damn good script and a lot of fun. And I, I agree on both counts and, and you know what, after, after a deep dive like this, uh, is there, is there any revelations that you've had Darren, uh, uh about, about assignment or just from this conversation that make you think of it differently? Only, only the one that uh, you know that uh, three four seven might or two hundred one might have been an animal. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, I, I, yeah. You know, that, that's the only thing that I, I hadn't even thought about before. Um, but uh, honestly, I love Gary Seven's uh, office. It's so uh, you know mid century chic, and uh, it's really classy. And the uh, you know the the addition of the uh, of the crazy space computer and uh, little doodads are a lot of fun and i would love to live in that apartment yeah oh, yeah totally it de- definitely has a mid-century modern look and it's you know very very bruce wayne very was James it uh, was it 211 east 68th street apartment 12b i think that was the address definitely 12b i don't remember their address though because <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> she, she, the- she yells it to the police on the phone well, that's impressive that you remember the apartment number, Steve. <laughs> well, that's because I, I saw that one. I, I, I'll pick up on something. I certainly wouldn't know the year that the Planet of the Apes takes place in the future. That's well, way beyond oh, that's me. A good one. <laughs> um, uh, well, Scott, Scott knew that one. I'm, yeah. I was impressed with that. 
here's what here's what I think about this episode, and and it really solidified watching it this last time. Do I think this is a really good episode of Star Trek? No, I do not think this is a really good episode of Star Trek, but I really think it's an interesting pilot for Assignment Earth. Like I would like, like in terms of Kirk and Spock stuff and McCoy and no, there's just, they stand around a lot and don't do very much, but I'm, I'm totally sold on Gary seven and Roberta. I want to see their adventures. I think it's a really good setup. I, I think this is a pretty successful pilot and I'm a little bit bummed that I didn't get to watch reruns of it in the seventies. Uh, I I completely agree with you. I still think that this episode holds up as a pilot, and even though they sort of did uh, sort of dip their their feet in the water doing season two of Picard uh, with the definite uh, connection to Assignment Earth, I still think a series just based on Assignment Earth with a character named Gary Seven and a character named Roberta Lincoln, if it was shot today in 2022 would still be a damn good series. Wondering what you all think. How do would would you watch Assignment Earth if it was a weekly series today? Let us know on and our Facebook page. Who would you what? cast? Oh man, that's a great question. Who would it's you a, cast? It's a tough one. I don't know. Oh man. I don't I don't think we have an actor who could do Gary Seven, honestly. So if I were casting Assignment Earth I think, first of all, in today's world, I'm not all that interested in the tough spy with the bumbling secretary, is that I would first reverse the genders. And I was thinking about it, and I would cast a very tough, both of these people are movie stars, so they probably might not do this gig, but a very tough, fantastic actor who's comfortable with action and can play some profound stuff, and that is Charlize Theron as Gary Seven. Oh. And then and then I want an act, an actor who is can be really, really funny, but also do adventure stuff. And actually, this is a person who started off being an action hero, and then we found out just how damn funny this guy is. And that is, as Roberta, who we'll now call Robert, I'm casting Chris Hemsworth. Uh, well, you're definitely shooting for the moon. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's that's an expensive series. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Absolutely. Nothing no but the best for Assignment Earth. But that yeah. is who I'm casting. Yeah. Maybe you should put it on Apple Plus instead of Paramount Plus. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> there you go. OK, so so everyone listening, A, would you watch a weekly series called Assignment Earth? And B, who would you cast as Gary Seven? Who would you cast as Roberta Lincoln? Head to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know. I I think this episode, because it is so unusual, because it's different, I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. It definitely holds up. Love the stock footage of the Saturn V. Robert Lansing's performance is terrific. And is it an episode, if I was uh, trying to uh, – sort of win over a new Star Trek fan? Is it the episode that I would show to this person that represents Star Trek? I mean, of course not. But no. if you are a Star Trek fan and you've been watching these episodes so many times over the decades like we have, and then you put on a Simon Earth, it's refreshing to see something different. So for that reason alone, I do love this episode. And I'm glad, Darren, especially, I'm glad you do too. And I'm so uh, happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. But I want to know just how proud are you of the the HD version of the director's edition of Star Trek, the motion picture now after after basically two get decades of waiting for this moment? Well, remember, it's not just HD. It's 4K. It's full film resolution. So uh, I'm extremely proud. And uh, I'm glad that uh, after... 
you know, 21 years of uh, doing the original version on DVD uh, that we were uh, given a chance to uh, revisit it. And I'm uh, I'm so glad we did because it, as you said, it looks better than it ever has. And it sounds amazing. I got to say, I was sitting right behind you at the Paramount Theater at that special premiere screening for friends and family that uh, you were, uh, you know, gracious enough to make sure that I got the invite to. And yeah, the sound, you know, I remember when the, when the movie first started, the sound really knocked my socks off, but Star Trek, the motion picture has aged. I, I always felt that Star Trek, the motion picture aged better than any other Star Trek movie. And I that agree. it was misunderstood at the time and it has held up so very well. And it is a, it is absolutely true to Star Trek because of, 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 for, for so many reasons. So, so, uh, you know, just thank you for, you know, persevering and making this happen. But I also want to ask you about the Otoy visual or virtual experience that you've been working with, uh, with, uh, uh, Doug, uh, Drexler and, and, uh, you know, what's, what's and that all about? And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, look, it's a, uh, it's a project that, uh, uh, uh that has been uh, started uh, with the full cooperation of uh, Roddenberry uh, and uh, Rod, the son. It is still in its uh, very, very early stages of planning and development. Right now, the Roddenberry archive is being gathered from all the existing paperwork that Roddenberry had, photographs, all sorts of things, and we are generating exact digital replicas of a ton of stuff, including uh, all the versions of the Enterprise, uh, the sets, costumes, characters, all sorts of things. Um, We have a general idea of what uh, the final resolution of this will be uh, and what it will actually be in terms of how an audience can interact with it, how people can uh, can uh, take in the uh, the stuff that we're creating, um, but it's still very very early on. Even after a, a year of development, um, it's uh, it's still very much in asset gathering and creation uh, mode. And technologies are circling around it uh, to make it available in some kind of uh, uh, of form. And it's it's still really early for that because obviously there are some things that we would like it to be that may not necessarily be ready technologically yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we're certainly laying the groundwork so that when it does happen, uh, it'll be able to function at its fullest. So wow. that's what the plan is. That's Very a cool. great plan. Can't wait for that to happen. And once again, everybody, make sure you subscribe to Inglorious Trexperts, the amazing Star Trek podcast that Darren Docterman is hosting with Mark A. Altman. Got to get the A in there. And uh, it is a, the Star Trek podcast that you absolutely have to listen to and subscribe to. Darren, where else can people find you on social media? Well, uh, they can find me at, uh, at Darren Doc on Twitter. And uh, I'm I'm around Facebook, but not a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, tend, I tend to keep a, a rather low profile, but uh, I, I follow and uh, contribute to uh, all of the uh, Trexperts postings, and uh, of course the 4:30 movie, uh, another podcast that we do. 
And, and Steve, uh, what about you? Where, where, before, well, before, before you tell us where people can follow you, what episodes of the cinephiles would be sort of like the episodes you want to listen to after listening to this deep dive of assignment earth. Well, obviously since we've talked so much about Terry Gar, we have done not one, not two, not three, but four Terry Gar movies on the cinephiles. Back in the very early days, we did Young Frankenstein. We did Black Stallion, which I think is a fantastically crafted and underappreciated film. And of course, we did Oh God, as we discussed. And with the great Scott Mance, we did Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So check those out on the Cinephiles. And you can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris One on Instagram. If you want to follow the show, the best place where we have the most content is on Facebook. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents. You can also follow us on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. And absolutely, please, it's very important, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and leave your reviews there. Or you can subscribe on YouTube, leave your comments there. We love interacting with you at every single one of these places. Scott, I don't think we've heard how people are going to find you. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And absolutely, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review leave a review for enterprise incidents because those reviews are very very helpful and you can also support us in one other very special and important way and steve what way is that all you have to do is look at the description at the very top of the description is a link it'll take you to anchor where you could support the show by subscribing for as little as 99 cents a month and that is what helps us to keep the show going just think of it as a tip jar we really appreciate all the support we've been getting lately and if you can find your way to click that link for us it would make a big difference and be sure to share enterprise incidents on all your social media pages we have been we're so grateful for for the amazing feedback we've gotten over this last year since we started doing this journey this deep dive episode by episode in production order journey uh, looking at star trek as a serialized show not just an episodic show and we are grateful for your support and your comments but we do need more people to find us so please be sure to share enterprise incidents on your social media platforms that brings us to the end of season two of Enterprise Incidents and the end of season two of Star Trek. Wow, I cannot believe, Steve. We feels like we just started doing this and here we are at the end of season two, which means our next episode is going to be our season two wrap up. And boy, do we have a lot to say on season two when we look back on it. So join us next time on Enterprise Incidents for our season two wrap up. And until then, keep going boldly.